ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we are going to begin reading in verse 16. We will go through chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, while you're turning, I thought I'd tell you, uh, we had, um, I had a time this week where I was talking to somebody who's not a, not a believer, and um, they were saying how they had to stand up in front of a group and say a few words, and they said, uh, that's probably, probably easy for you, right? Because they knew that I... I'm a pastor. And uh, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid of public speaking. And, and he said, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, it's probably easy for you to stand up and say something, you know, inspirational. You're probably really good at saying something inspirational. And I said, well, that's, that's not really what I do. I mean, that's not, I'm, uh, I know some pastors try to stand up and say something inspirational, but I'm, it's not really, and he said, oh, really? I said, no, I, um, I really just open the Bible and try to uh, say what the Bible says and apply it the right way and explain it. And he's looking at me like I'm from another planet. And uh, I said, uh, yeah, I don't think that I have any great particular wisdom in and of myself. Uh, I don't think that I'm a very inspiring person. Um, I, I trust God's Word to uh, you know, be where the wisdom comes from and where the inspiration comes from. So I, I'm really just standing up trying to, trying to explain what the Bible says and, and call people to respond to that. And he said, you know, I've, you're the first person that has ever told me that about preaching and about teaching. I said, yeah. Um, and I share that with you because, you know, sometimes uh, uh, there are things in the text that we approach that I know are really are very hard. I know that they're they're not easy and they're very challenging, um, perhaps convicting. Um, but I want you to be assured that I don't approach these uh, topics as some kind of um, you know perfect person. Um, I I am a sinner, and I'm regularly dealing with my sin too, just as I hope you are um, confronted by my sinfulness, when I talk of um, not giving yourself to earthly things, I preach to myself too. Uh, sometimes on Sunday morning in particular, you might see me get particularly emotional. It's only because I have been wrestling by Sunday morning for an extended period of time with the things that I'll be sharing when I stand up, and um, my heart is particularly sensitive by Sunday morning, um, to the songs that we sing and and the scripture that we read. And so as we turn our attention to Philippians 3 here again, I want to express with you certainly a sense of fellowship, camaraderie before the text, that I stand uh, beneath it with all of you and certainly never above it. Let's read beginning in verse 16 then. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. 
For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. And that's as far as we will go in the text this morning. Previously, last week, uh, we spoke of the mature or the perfect Christian. Verse 15 says, as many of us as are mature, and I told you, that is the same word for perfect, complete, finished. And it's a play on words because what he says, as many of us are mature, have this mind. And the mindset he is describing is a mind that presses toward the perfection of Jesus Christ. The completing work of Jesus Christ. That completing work is alluded to here in the verses we just read, isn't it? It says, verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body. That is complete right there. When Jesus takes me from this fallen body, which, if he does not return before I die, will find its resting place in the ground or in the water or in the fire or wherever this body comes to and will rot and decay and come to nothing, Jesus, at his coming, will take that and transform it into a body as his glorious body is, a new body. I am under a spiritual transformation right now. I am not the same person that I used to be. God is in fellowship with me, with His Holy Spirit living and active and working in my life. And Paul has said, be transformed now. Press toward the goal here. Press forward. Leave the things that are behind behind and press toward the goal of the upward call of Christ. Press forward, and that transformation is happening in a very real way spiritually to me now. But those who are mature in Christ know that we must continue pressing on until the completing work of Jesus is finished, which will happen at His return. There is no time short of my death on this earth or the return of Jesus There is no time short of that where I will be able to raise the banner of mission accomplished for Reggie. I will wrestle, and this is a humbling thing, I will wrestle with sin until the day that I die. I am in fallen human 
sinful flesh. I have a fallen, human, sinful mind. Jesus is transforming my mind. But that transformation is not complete on this earth. At no point do I get to say, I'm done. Look at me. I'm finished. Complete perfection. And so it's a play on words when Paul says here, those who are mature, those who are complete, those who are perfect, know they have to press on toward perfection. They have to share this mindset with me, which is the mind of Christ described to us in chapter 2. Because Christ, being found in the form of a man, became obedient even to death. So So must we. Obedient to death. All the way. All the way. Like when you're out there trying to get something done and a child saying, are we almost done? Are we almost finished? Can we go do this now? And you look at the child and in your own words, depending on what you're doing, you tell them, no, we are going all the way. (laughs) We are going all the way. For a few years, I had the privilege of uh, watching... uh, Coach, coach that I respected. Some of you played for, and he had a he had this rule that if anyone was supposed to be running and touching a line and they didn't touch it, the whole group did it again. And he would put coaches on the line to look down the line just to see if anyone did not touch the line, and if anyone didn't touch the line, here's the kids and they're running and they're tired and they're they're back and they think they're finished. And he would look up at the coaches and say, "Did everybody touch the line?" And someone would might say. Nope, not everybody touched the line. They say, let's do it again. And the whole purpose was because we go all the way. We go all the way. We're not going to go most of the way. (laughs) We're not going to go a little of the way. We're going to go all. And if you are a Christian with maturity, you know that the mind of Christ is to go all the way. We do not. We did not come up short. With that in mind, in verse 16, he says, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained. Praise God, there is progress. (laughs) To the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. As mature as you are, as grown up in Christ as you are, You need to walk by this standard. Share this mindset. And you know what that means. When you are dealing with little children, it, it sometimes takes them a tremendous amount of focus and effort to follow along for a very short period of time, right? And when you get through some of the most basic elementary things, it's as if they have made, you know, Tremendous accomplishment. Now you hope that as you deal with someone in their 20s, 30s, 40s, that they have accustomed themselves to giving a little bit more effort and a little bit more focus and a little bit more drive and a little bit more discipline. You would not expect the learning curve to be the same for a child with something difficult as for a grown-up. And I think what Paul is saying here is very simple. We are at differing stages of our Christian walk. Some of us will be able to go harder longer. (laughs) 
Some of us will, will falter uh, over a longer period of time as opposed to a shorter period of time. Some of us will need less, less accompanying along the way and less pulling along. Nevertheless, we should live by the same rule. That the objective here is to go all the way. And we bear the burdens with those who are less mature and need fellowship along the way and prodding and exhortation because if we're honest, that's all of us at differing times. But to whatever level we've attained, to whatever, wherever we are at, we should exert the appropriate effort in the same mindset. We might be exerting different amounts of effort, but the mindset should be the same. That we are pressing toward to the very end. In verse 17, he does something that's really bold. Brethren, join in following my example. Now, I just want to ask you a question. How many areas of your life in general? You can count anything. You can count your expertise at work or whatever it is. You can count everything. Anything. How many areas of life are you comfortable looking at someone else and saying, just do what I'm doing? It's probably relatively few. Now, you might look at a complete novice <laughs> and say, Hey, look, you have no clue what you're doing, so, you know, I'm no expert here, but, you know, if, <laughs> you're not going to mess it up if you try to do what I'm doing anyway, so, you know, you may be comfortable doing that, but that's not what Paul's doing. He's speaking broadly, and he's saying very broadly, brethren, join in following my example. Beyond that, he goes another step and says, and note those who so walk. As you have a pattern from us. In other words, there is something good in having patterns for how to live this Christian life. There's something good about that. There's something commendable in that. Some people, I think, have the idea that I don't need an example in my Christian walk because I have the Bible. I don't need, you know, an example or anyone to follow in the pattern of what they're doing because, you know, I've got Jesus and Peter and John. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is calling them to note, to pay attention, to mark in their minds those who are setting an example worth following. And I think he has in mind here the idea of role models, of people who are worth patterning life after. And he's not saying, hey, you shouldn't have any role models because they might become prideful and full of themselves and all puffed up. And that's not what he's saying. He is commending this idea, which is interesting. And it begs the question. What makes a good Christian example? What makes a good role model? I don't think that Paul is commending his example on the grounds of his own high morality. I don't think what he's saying here is, follow my example 
because I sin much less than everyone else. I don't think that's what he's doing. If I read it properly in the flow of the text, the example that he is commending them to follow is the fact that he presses on toward the upward call of Christ, that he leaves behind things that are in the past, he presses toward things that are ahead, he understands the pole of the world and earthly things, and yet he counts them all as rubbish, as garbage for the sake of knowing Christ, for the sake of fellowshipping with Christ, for the sake of being close to Christ. And in that, there is an example. I would phrase it this way, and I'm going to try to defend this this morning. Maybe poorly, but I will use Scripture. What makes a good Christian example? And I would answer, men and women who press toward the goal. I think that's the contextual answer. That's what we're seeing in Philippians 3. But I'm going to add some things from other portions of the Bible here who demonstrate faithful, cross-bearing, church-loving friendship with Christ. Now those, we could add a lot more adjectives. But on my heart, as I was preparing, those are the ones I came up with. Some of them are hyphenated. People who demonstrate faithful, that's one, cross-bearing, two, church-loving, three, friendship with Christ. And I'm prepared to defend this. Scripture. Faithful. In Matthew 25, 23, Jesus tells a parable, and it's very familiar if you've been around church for a long time, the parable of the talents. And this is the one where a man who's a master goes away on a long trip, and he's a wealthy guy with household managers. He has at least three household managers. And he gives money to each of the three household managers, his own money, to manage for him while he is away. Talent was a, a, a type of money. That's the, why it's called the parable of the talents. It's the par- we might say the parable of the, of the money. Okay, it's Same kind of idea. And this guy goes away. And two of the servants that he leaves the money with work hard. They devote themselves to managing that money well. So when the master returns, he sees that they have worked hard, that they have followed in his example, that they have done their very best, and by God's grace, they have had an increase. And he tells them both, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of your master. Well done, my good and faithful servant. So I would say, a good Christian example is someone who is faithful in the sense that they are hard at work with what God has given them for God's purposes. They are faithful to God. They are not merely hard at work. (laughs) They are hard at work with what God has given them, understanding they are managing what belongs to another master. And so, like anyone who manages something for a boss or an employer, they must be faithful to that master's objectives with their labor. 
Some of you may have had this experience where you've been a, a boss or a management or involved with some project. Maybe you've merely worked or contributed in some project. And there's a checkpoint where someone comes to see how progress is going. And all of the people on the team say, well, we have been working very hard. And the person who's managing the project says, yes, I can see that, but you are not doing what I told you to do. <laughs> I'm not questioning your effort. I'm questioning where you have directed your effort. This is not what you are supposed to be doing. That's not a faithful servant. No, no. Someone worthy of following it as an example is faithful in the sense of hard work, but towards the Lord Jesus' objectives, not toward their own ideas. In one sense, we might say, there is very little room for creativity when it comes to fulfilling the commandments of the Lord. Um, we are creative people, and there might be creative things that the Lord puts on our heart, but we should be sure that our efforts are not taking creative license in an entirely different direction from where God has directed us. Must be faithful. And in that passage, of course, there is the warning of the person who was not faithful. And though we will not dwell there today, he is cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Faithfulness is not optional. I was looking on the internet this morning and ran across an article by Tom Rayner. If you don't know who Tom Rayner is, that's fine. Former president of Lifeway. Don't worry about it. It's just a guy. But he wrote something that was interesting to me. Here was his quote, perhaps the most unbiblical reason for no longer serving in a church are these four deadly words, I've done my time. He had five sayings on this. I just want to read them to you. Just, I'll, bull, I'll machine gun them to you. They won't talk about them at all. But here's what he said about that phrase, I've done my time. Number one, ministry in the local church does not have an expiration date. Number two, those four words sound like a prison sentence. Number three, the Bible is clear that all members are to do ministry. Number four, those four words are demoralizing to church leaders and active church members. And number five, most often those four words are accompanied with the baggage of bad attitudes. It's interesting. We should be faithful to the end, the whole way. I said cross-bearing, faithful cross-bearing. This one is from Matthew 16, 24. You might know the broader story here. Jesus has told his disciples he's going to be crucified. And Peter, no surprise, has a very strong reaction to that announcement. You remember what he says? Jesus, I'm going to go to Jerusalem where I'm going to be crucified. And Peter says, not so, Lord, that's a strong reaction to say to Jesus. No, I object. And you might remember the very strong response that Jesus delivers. If you're chuckling, I assume you do. He says in a phrase, get behind me, Satan, which I've never been called the devil before. I can't imagine it was comfortable, especially in that setting. But what, uh, what is it other than the spirit of the devil 
that hears the Lord Jesus and says, no. (laughs) Peter didn't realize that's what was going on. And Jesus, as a good example does, makes it abundantly clear that that's exactly what he's doing. He's getting in the way of the plan of God. Get out of the way. Get behind me. He said, that's not all Jesus says, by the way, to Peter. This is what he says. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why was Peter offensive? Because he was only thinking about earthly things. I don't want you to die. I don't want to die. I don't think you're going to die. And that is offensive to Jesus, who is willing to sacrifice his life because he is mindful of the things of God, to borrow the phrase from the text. And he says, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself, take up your own cross, and do so. There is no other way. Cross-bearing then, an example who is a cross-bearing example is someone who is sacrificially, daily, dragging the burdens and the challenges of serving Jesus with them as they proceed in accordance to his will. They are burdened by the difficulty of fulfilling the command of Jesus on this earth. It is hard. It is painful. They are burdened by their various commitments to serve the Lord. It is a struggle. It's heavy. It's painful. It might cost them everything in the end. But there they can be seen, dragging the burden along anyway, following Jesus. That is a cross-bearing example. And I'm convicted of that. Because I can see parts of my life that are that. But I also wonder if other parts of my life aren't. I trust you feel some of that too. But we must be cross-bearing people. I said church loving. In John chapter 10 verse 11, Jesus says, The shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The sheep in the parable are God's people. They are the church. The shepherd does not walk away from the sheep and abandon them and say, well, you know, forget those guys. They did something bad or I'm not super comfortable or whatever it is. The the shepherd is there with the sheep, stubborn as they may be. Jesus loved the church. That's his example. In Ephesians 5.25, We are told as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. Um, Our God loves the church in all of its messiness, just as a husband is supposed to love his wife, though she's probably not perfect all the time. (laughs) I don't know. I've been married a long time. Just a couple of times, Allison has made me upset. You know, just a couple of times. Not often. You know? But I am to love my wife sacrificially, despite her failings, despite challenges that may come, despite things like sickness, 
despite things like poverty, despite things like tremendous difficulty, I am to be as committed to my wife as Jesus was to a bunch of rebels who were against God, who were enemies of God when he loved us and gave his life to see us become his church. So, yes, a good example must be church loving. And when someone says, oh, well, I had a bad experience with church. Well, Jesus had a bad experience with people too. Yeah, so did Paul, who in Philippians 4, verse 1, assures us of where his affections lie. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. It's not optional to love the church. And I don't mean love like, yeah, I really like those people. I hope they're doing okay. No, 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 That's not real. That's not real. You know? I felt that way about like Alex Trebek, who when he was dying of cancer doing Jeopardy. I don't know Alex Trebek. Oh, yeah, I like Alex Trebek. I hope he's doing okay. I hope he's all right. That's not, that's not what this is. No, this is a love that's real kind of love that Jesus had and that Paul had. And I said, friendship with Christ. I said, men and women who press toward the goal, who demonstrate faithful, cross-bearing, church-loving friendship with Christ. And here is what the Lord Jesus says about this in John 15, verse 15. Whoever does what I command them, <laughs> these are my friends. Whoever does what I command so a good example is someone who is seeking to obey Jesus, the fullness of his command and instruction, to be his friend. Are you a good Christian example? That's a tough one for me. I want to be. I want to be. I want to be faithful and sacrificial I want to love the church as Jesus did. I want to keep Jesus' commands. I don't think it's wrong for me to say that I, I can be an example. I'm a pastor. I should say that, but I feel the weight of that too. Are you a good Christian example? If someone followed your example... If you were the pattern, to borrow the word from the verse there in verse 17, what would they take note of? What might they see? What would they observe? That's a humbling thing to think about, isn't it? Do you have good Christian examples? Just a few weeks ago, I was talking with someone about their sin. This is a believer. And they were confessing. It was hard. It's hard to confess sin, right? Not sin against me. But they were confessing sin that had gone unconfessed and undealt with. Not that I'm some priest that has to offer them forgiveness. That's not what I mean by confession. I mean, they were just coming clean about where they were spiritually, which is healthy to do to the right person. But as we were talking, I said, well, who... Who have you talked with these things about when you are going through them? 
And the person gave me a few names of some buddies and some lost people. I said, well, I think that you made the situation a lot worse for yourself because you didn't choose the right people to talk to. What in the world does your buddy know about this? <laughs> what in the world does that kid know about this? He hasn't lived for the Lord for an extended period of time. Oh, he can tell you what the Bible says. You already knew what the Bible said. Who's your example? Who's your pattern? But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to talk with people. Sometimes it's harder to talk with people who might be an example because we have a high opinion of them and we don't want them to have a low opinion of us. But someone who's worthy of being an example to pattern your life after knows their own sinfulness and will not merely condemn you for your sin, but will try to see you through it to the other side. Do you have patterns, examples in your life? Oh, don't tell me Peter. Peter's dead. Paul's dead. They'll rise again. That's not going to help you right now. <laughs> Who do you have that can talk to you honestly from a place of spiritual discipline about what's going on in your life? Well, this person. Well, that person. This is my go-to. This is my go-to. Oh, yeah, let me ask you about them. Are they a faithful, cross-bearing, church-loving friend of Jesus Christ? If they aren't, I think you should note some other examples, as Paul would say here. I think you should take note of some other people. Um, I want to take just a moment and uh, thank those of you who have been good examples for me in my life. Um, I won't thank you by name because I won't do that to you. But uh, some of you are here, some are not here. I've grown up in this church. 25 years I've been in this church. And I think that I've seen sin from just about everyone <laughs> at some point or another. My examples are not sinless people. Some sin very public and very difficult. But my examples are faithful people. My examples are church-loving people. My examples are sacrificial people. And my examples are friends with my Lord Jesus Christ. If you're going to aspire to be something in life, can you think of something better than that? What would be better than saying, you know what, from today forward, maybe I have not been a very good example. Maybe I am not in a place to be an example today. But you know what, I've got however many years of life that I have left. From this day forward, that's the kind of resume that I want to put together to help people, to lead people to Jesus. That's the kind of resume I want. I don't care about how much money is in my bank account at the end. 
You know, I don't, I don't care about how much fun I had on the weekends. You know, I, I don't care about that stuff so much. But the things that are going to become the priority in my life are going to be cross-bearing and faithfulness and love for God's people and obedience to Jesus Christ. And when I fail, I'm going to do what Christian people do. I'm going to acknowledge my failure and get back up and keep going because I know as a Christian, God is not furious at me. He loves me. So I'm going to accept my failures, repent of them and move on. But this is the example I want. Would you, if you are a Christian this morning, would you just take a moment and consider committing yourself to that? The younger you are, the better. The older you are is fine too. Would you commit yourself to that, Christian? And if you're sitting here today, I just want to read to the unbelievers who are with us. I just want to read to you verse 18 and following and try to share the gospel with you. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. I don't think he's lying. I think the Apostle Paul is actually emotionally falling apart as he thinks of these people who he cares about. That they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And to me, there's a sense of resignation in that because <laughs> you don't want that for anyone. And this is what he said, whose end is destruction. He knows that they are living in rejection of a Savior and face eternity in hell. Whose God is their belly. They live their life for whatever appetite they have. I don't think it means merely food. Whatever appetite, whatever desire, whatever pleasure, that's how they live. One thing to the next. Just like people who are eating food. <laughs> people who are addicted to food, it's not just, I'm just going to eat this one thing and be done. One thing to the next, never satisfied. And whose glory is in their shame. The things that they celebrate and take pride in are shameful because they are not the right things. They're not weighted in eternal value. <laughs> They're not weighted in the glory of God. They are weighted in mere experiential, temporal, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, nonsense, shame. Do you know how much work goes into making a dead body look presentable for a viewing? There is no glory in anything down here. And he says who set their mind on earthly things, which I think is a general summary for all the previous three descriptions. For our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. We don't do that. We don't set our mind on earthly things. Why? Because we're citizens of a different kingdom. From which we also eagerly await for the Savior. We're not fulfilling appetites. We have one all superior appetite that will be satisfied in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. Now, I want to say this and then I want to close. It could be that you are sitting here this morning knowing that when you die, according to the word of God, you will go to hell. You are not a Christian. Maybe you have made a profession of faith. Maybe you have not. But you know that your life does not show faithfulness to Christ. You have not trusted Jesus with your life. You are not faithful to him. But instead, you live your life according to your own appetites, your own desires. You are the captain of your own ship. You do what you want. You're okay with your sin. And you have previously been uninterested in turning away from it. To summarize, you are not interested in living for Jesus. Does that describe you this morning? I tell you now, your glory is in your shame. You should be ashamed of yourself. God has taken on flesh and was crucified so that you can be forgiven of all moral failure, so that you can be legally cleared of all sin. Did you hear that? Do not let the cry of a baby distract you. Jesus was crucified for you. He would adopt you as his own son his own daughter and love you and provide a home and a family for you forever when your family here and your home here fail. He would take you from your deathbed, from your grave, from the tragedy of decay and rot that is already setting into your body, whether you realize it or not, and he would give you a new body, eternal and incorruptible, to live in peace with him forever. And you would rather... Sleep around. Keep your shows and your movies and your music. Keep your profanity. Chase money, pleasure, earthly security. Drink with impunity. You would rather keep your sin. You would rather live your life on your terms. And I'm telling you, your glory is in your shame. You should be ashamed of yourself. Ashamed. But you need not continue on that way. God, in giving us Jesus, has shown his love for you. He will forgive you. He will save your life. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust him. If you don't know how to do that, I will help you. I will help you. I will help you today. Put away childish things. Be the man or the woman who God has created you to be. Don't live your life in shame only to be punished for it. If you want to bow your heads and pray with me now.
Father, I cannot save a single soul. There are no magic words to convince someone to put their faith in you. Nor do I want conversions based on emotional manipulation. I have tried, Father, as best I can to be faithful to your word this morning. To express only the emotion of Paul himself in the text. Who with great tears thinks of those who should be ashamed of themselves. And who are headed to eternal destruction. And yet it is a sobering thing. It doesn't need to be that way God. You will save. You can transform lives. You can work. I plead with you Lord to do that this morning. I plead with you. To work in the hearts of the people here. You can do what I can't do. You can change the hearts of people. I can't do that. You've spoken in your word. We are helpless without you to convince anyone to trust you. And I, I plead with you, Father. With great distress in my own soul. Save the lost this morning. Bring sinners to their knees before you. Take hearts of stone and make them human again. Let them feel their sin and let them feel the love of Jesus anew. I can't do that. I plead with you, God, to do that. And for the rest of us, lay upon our hearts the conviction that we should be models, people worth pattering a life after. Take these tithes and offerings and use them for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.